Well, the mainstream, mainstream media has been telling us for years that traditional Christianity is dying faster than the latest Brexit deal. Yet here in Manchester, the newer churches are booming and they're full of young people. They're full of international people. How do you explain it? It all depends on how big Jesus is. Now, there are many versions of Jesus. I wonder which one is yours. There's the sentimental Jesus. Meek and mild, the helpless baby lying in a manger, surrounded by animals. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. The Jesus of Christmas carols, who comes with a mince pie, and a glass of mulled wine to warm your heart at a certain time of December. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Warm, sentimental, not much more. Then there's the victim Jesus, the innocent one, beaten, bloodied, crucified, betrayed by an unjust legal system and corrupt people in power, symbol of the need for freedom, justice for the oppressed everywhere. Or there's the role model Jesus, the moral teacher, the inspiration and example for people to follow. This version is a good man who shares the golden rule, do unto others as you have them do to you. He's a bit like a decent head boy at school who comes alongside the younger pupils and gives them some jolly good advice how to please the master and do well at the end of school exams. There are all sorts of versions of Jesus out there, but the problem is none of them is the true Jesus and none of them is big enough. None of them explains the growth and vibrancy of global Christianity. None is big enough to follow. And none of them is really big enough to give your whole life to. We need to see the real Jesus. And we especially need to see the real Jesus at Christmas, because he's often obscured. This is the time when traditionally the church, through history, has remembered his incarnation, how God became man. The great carols have got it, you know. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. But we can get sidetracked. Even committed Christians can get sidetracked by the sentimentality of the season, bloated and dulled by too much rich food, and miss the real point of Jesus, which is far from sentimental. We need to see the real Jesus. And perhaps the most breathtaking description of who Jesus Christ is, is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We read a section of it earlier, Lana read it, perhaps that first bit could come up on the screen. Scholars think that this, first, this section was originally some kind of poem, or maybe a hymn, because it has a real structure and a rhythm within it. Some Bibles, maybe your Bible there, uh, has it laid out as a poem. And I want to just spend some time with you in it this afternoon. We've had two great weeks of reaching out to all sorts of different people around the community with carol services and with simple messages. Today I want to drill down a bit deeper into this, this teaching about the incarnation of Jesus and who he is. And I want to draw your attention to three things in this passage. Three things. Jesus, firstly, is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Secondly, Jesus made it all. And thirdly, Jesus paid it all. Jesus, the image. Look again at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the Bible teaches from start to finish that God is invisible. 
He's a spirit and doesn't have a body like us. However, there was a time in human history where you could actually see God. You could walk up and touch him. Because God became a man and lived on earth for over 30 years. His name was Yeshua, translated Jesus, which means God saves. Now what this means is that if we want to see God, if we want to know what God is like, then we need to look at Jesus Christ. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're in a room in a big rambling old house, big mansion, and there's someone in the next room who you want to talk to, but you can't see them because there's a wall in between you. But you look through the door, and there in the hallway, hanging on the wall, is a beautiful old gilt-framed mirror. And as you look into that mirror, you can see the reflection of the person in the next room because they also have the door open. And you see them. You can see them in the mirror. Even though you're not face-to-face, you can see their image. The Bible is saying Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible one, of God. And when you look at Jesus... You actually see God, but God in the flesh. And the Bible also claims that Jesus is, not, is, is the only true image of God. Now, it stands to reason that if Jesus Christ is the true image of God, then none of the other versions of God or visions of God that are out there can be the real thing. Now, a lot of people in our city, in our context, immediately start to feel nervous at that point. Exclusive claims about Jesus, isn't that a little bit arrogant? Intolerant? A lot of people would assume so. Many people are nervous about any claims to exclusive truth. They fear that if you claim to have the one truth, then you're on the slippery slope to being a suicide bomber. And besides, they argue, and this is actually true, all knowledge is socially conditioned. So how could one person know the truth about God? Aren't we all just dancing in the dark? Now, I'm nervous of intolerance too. But, you know, being confident in the truth is not necessarily the same thing as being an intolerant fundamentalist. You can know the truth and be humble and respectful of other people's opinions if it's a truth that humbles you. My friend John was adopted. He grew up in a wonderful family, a very warm, caring home. But his parents were always open with him about the fact that he was adopted and as he got older he was faced with a choice. They gave him the choice, did he want to find out about his biological mother? Did he want to meet her? And he he asked a lot of questions about this. You can imagine how that could work out a number of ways, couldn't it? You've never met your biological mum, so you could go and ask everyone uh, what you can find out about her. Some of them maybe only heard things about us, so you're hearing opinions and rumours. Other people maybe would have known her personally, so you're hearing first-hand testimony and stories. But you still haven't met her. And finally, there's a knock at the door. And when you open it, a woman is standing there, and she says, it's me. Now, this is what the Bible claims about Jesus Christ. Humanity is no longer in the realms of speculation and rumour. We are out of the woods. We hear a knock. We open the door. And Jesus Christ is standing there. And he says, it's me. The image of the invisible God. Not telling us about God, but actually being God. 
He who has seen me has seen the Father, he said to one of his disciples, Philip. Now, when you get to know this Jesus, this exclusive truth claim humbles you. So this is an exclusive truth claim that makes those who believe it more gracious and humble, not less. The more you really know Jesus Christ, the bigger he becomes, doesn't he? Some of you have been following Jesus for many years. Some, some of you have been following Jesus for decades. The more you've got to know him, the bigger he becomes and the smaller you realise you are. Now, because he's the image of the invisible God, Jesus, it says, is also the firstborn over all creation. Now, some people think, hold on a minute, this is a bit of a contradiction. If Jesus is God in the flesh, how can he be born, the firstborn? Because God was never born. Now, the answer is that the meaning of the word firstborn in the ancient world had, could, could mean a couple of different things. Sometimes it meant what we instinctively think which is the oldest child, the firstborn. Often, it also meant the person with the highest rank or status. So the firstborn could be a title. In the ancient world, when a king was crowned, people would say he was appointed the firstborn, the highest one. And notice it says here, Jesus was the firstborn, not the firstborn of creation, but the firstborn over creation. And it straight away says in verse 16, in him all things were created, and he is before all things. Nothing was created that was not made by him. So the first, Jesus being the firstborn over all creation means he is preeminent. He's absolutely supreme. He's the firstborn that has the same status as God the Father, which is what you would expect if he was God in the flesh. And so because Jesus is God, the second point follows, which is this, Jesus made it all. Jesus made it all. Verse 16 and 17, I'll read them again. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus made it all. Have you ever seen something in the natural world that took your breath away? Ever seen a purple sunset with the colours streaking the sky? You ever seen a twinkling host of stars in a clear night sky? Ever seen the sun rise over a lofty mountain range? Ever seen the foaming waves over the green ocean? Or the smile of a baby? Or the frolic of a two-week-old puppy? We've got one of those in our house at the moment. Wonderful bit of creation, tearing up the carpet. <laughs> you ever had your breath taken away by the world? It's been filled with a sense of wonder. Many years ago, I stayed at a lakeside in a lakeside cabin in northern Wisconsin in the United States. We went out in a boat onto the dark lake at night and we could hear coyotes howling over in the, in the black forest. And up above I saw, for the first time, and maybe the last time in my life, flickering up there the aurora borealis, the northern lights. I'd never seen anything like it. It's like these flickering streams of light Green and red light pulsing there in the sky. It took my breath away. 
And why do we feel this way about creation? Now, the materialist view is that creation is merely the product of blind forces of chance, ticking away for billions of years with no discernible purpose or reason and certainly no design. The random outcome of atoms and gases pinging around until eventually, like the fumblings of a blind watchmaker, out you came. Now, how satisfying is that answer? When you look at a baby, do you feel that this carbon-based life form is merely the product of blind chance, has no more dignity than a dog? Or is she a created person of inestimable value? I don't think we can have it both ways. The Bible's answer is more plausible to our experience of life. It says the world was created. It was made by a loving designer, a personal God, who gave every human being dignity and conscience and a love of beauty. The Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created, not an impersonal force, a personal God. Not a lot of gods battling away, but one supreme being who we discover is a tri-unity, a trinity of persons, Father, Son and Spirit, three persons in one Godhead. He doesn't create because he has to or because he's lonely, but because he wants to, to share his own happiness and glory with people made to be just like him. The Jewish people were unique in the ancient world for their belief that there was only one God and that he should not share his glory with another. It was a central tenet of their faith. The first of the two, first two of the Ten Commandments say it like this. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself any image or any likeness of anything in the world and bow down and serve it. Now this is why Colossians Chapter 1 is so stunning. It's written by an Orthodox Jew, Paul, who knew his Bible back to front. And he says, Jesus Christ, this man who walked the streets of Palestine, is the image of God and every single thing was created by him. Jesus made it all. Verse 16, all things were created by him. That means Jesus Christ must be God. He's the great designer. Verse 16, all things were created for him. Ever wonder why the world exists? It's made for Jesus. Verse 17, he was before all things. So in terms of timing and chronology, Jesus was around before anything else was made. And verse 17, in him all things hold together. The world doesn't keep turning because of impersonal physical laws. But the active power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sustains and governs the world and therefore gives us the laws of physics and everything else. You could not get a much bigger Jesus than this, could you? He made it all. And yet, this is the handyman from Nazareth, as his neighbours said. He had a northern accent. He didn't go to university. He had four brothers and some sisters from a big family. He ate and drank and laughed and wept and worked, got tired and slept, just like us. It says, Jesus, this Jesus made it all. So he was a man, yes, but not just a man. The creator made man. Now, what does this mean for our lives 
You know, this gives us hope. In a very dark world, Jesus Christ is big enough to take care of your life, friends. He's big enough to take care of your life. Will you let him? It gives us joy. We're not lost in the dark, wondering what God is like, looking forward to a short, brutish life. We can know the living God because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we know that God is great. He's wonderful. Because you read the stories, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ, and again and again you see this most wonderful person coming into people's lives and changing everything for good. We see here that Jesus is bigger than ever we imagined. He has always been there, and he always will be. You and I are like the desert flowers. They grow up quickly in one day, and then the wind blows over, and they're gone. But of such value to him, because he made you, and he remembers how you were made. His eyes saw your unformed body when you were knit together in your mother's womb. He knows every day ordained for you. It's written down in his book. He hems you in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, not too wonderful for him. Jesus made it all. This means that you matter. Your life matters. Because this Jesus Christ made you and loves you. So is there any part of your life that Jesus can't handle? Is there any part of your life that's just too big for Jesus? Of course not. There are over 7 billion people alive on this planet today. From one perspective, we're just specks on a small blue dot. We're all moving through. But from another perspective, we can be threads in a great tapestry that God is weaving as he works in history to rescue this world from sin. And how does he do that? Third and final point. Jesus paid it all. He's the image. He made it all. And thirdly and finally, he paid it all. Look again with me, please, at verse 18. There it is up on the screen, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I mean, this, when you look at it, what he's just been saying about, you know, everything that's been made has been made through Jesus. Wow, it's incredible, creator. And then suddenly he turns and he says, and guess what? He's the head of the church. And you sort of think, um... Maybe he came down a bit of a gear there, you know, it was sort of anticlimactic. The church, did, did Paul run out of grand things to say about Jesus and just blurted out the first thing that came into his mind? Because I think to us, saying Jesus is the head of the church is not the most impressive thing that could be said. We tend to think of church as a small group of people meeting in a tired hall on a Sunday, singing hymns to an attitude piano with a luminous paper sign outside, bearing a dad joke. Or we think of church as an enormous old building made of cold stones, dark religious paintings, big brass crucifixes, candles. Church is sort of a strange museum. Or we think of church as history, the European past. There's a church in every French village and nobody goes. Church is old money, institutional power, hypocrisy. Church is men wearing funny clothes and speaking Latin. We don't tend to think of church as 
really awesome. But it turns out that we don't get church at all. Because look what Paul says about it. When he unpacks the meaning of church, this is what he says. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, we've already heard him talking about the beginning because he's talking about Jesus as the creator, the one who made it all. And here we have Paul talking about the beginning again. And this time, it's Jesus is the beginning of something else. And once again, Jesus is the firstborn. Remember, he was the firstborn overall creation. And now, in the second half of the poem, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does this mean? This second use of the word firstborn. When was Jesus the firstborn from the dead? You know the answer. It's when he rose from death. Jesus Christ was killed on a deadly Roman torture instrument called a cross. He, he breathed a last breath and expired. He died. His body was inspected by professionals and pronounced dead. It was taken down from the cross, wrapped in cloths, put into a new tomb, which meant there were no other corpses in there. It lay in that tomb through Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, and then sometime early on Sunday morning, the unthinkable happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. The first people to visit the tomb were some women. They were appalled and shocked to see that the tomb was empty at first. And then the risen Lord Jesus spoke to Mary to quieten her fears and she recognised him. Some of his male disciples heard this story and went to the tomb. They went running. They too saw an empty cave with clothes folded neatly. They wondered what it meant. But then they saw him too. And not just once in some sort of grief-stricken dream. They saw him many times and ate with him and spoke with him for 40 days. It was him. Recognisably so, they could hear his voice and see his face. They were so convinced about this that most of them gave their lives for him. They were martyred. One man stubbornly doubted. He held out for about a week. His name was Thomas. He just couldn't buy it. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared the first time. And so for a week they tried to persuade him and Thomas said, I can't, I can't believe this. I just can't believe it. And then they were in a locked room and Jesus appeared again and he said, Thomas, it's me. Look at my hands and feet and side. You see, he still bore the scars of his crucifixion. And Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God. It was him. And yet there was also something different. His body was a new body, not just the old one patched up by a good doctor. It was still him, but it was a resurrection body. It will never decay or grow old. This is what firstborn from the dead means. So on this occasion, when Paul says firstborn, it, takes, it makes more sense to use the other meaning, which is the oldest brother. He's the oldest brother from the dead. He's the chronological firstborn person from the dead, in the sense that he's the first one with the resurrection body. Now, it's important to make this point because in Jesus' ministry, you remember, 
There were various times where people were raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Lazarus, Jesus' close friend. Those people were all raised from the dead and they went on to live a normal life and they all died again. Not so Jesus Christ. This was different. It was the start of something new. The Bible says he was raised incorruptible in a glorious body. He would never die again. That's the resurrection. So the firstborn from the dead means that Jesus' resurrection is the start of something new. And it's the start of something really big. It is not just that Jesus' resurrection proves that he is God, although it does. It is that Jesus' resurrection has initiated a whole new state of affairs in this world and in time and in this universe. Because he is the firstborn, the oldest brother means there will be many others. How many? Wouldn't we like to know? The Jehovah's Witnesses, bless them, have camped out on a verse in the book of Revelation that says 144,000. But to do that, they've had to ignore the way numbers are used throughout the whole entire rest of the book of Revelation, which is numbers as symbols. And 12 is the number of God's people. And 12 times 12 is 144. And 1,000 in the book of Revelation is a really big number. So 144,000 means God's people and there's lots of them. Elsewhere it says a multitude that no one can number. New Testament teaches, got to hold on to your seatbelt here. New Testament teaches that all God's people will one day be raised from the dead like Jesus with a glorious new body. This is what we call our resurrection hope. A hope based on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. If he rose from the dead, you can too. One day. That is our hope of a post-death future, a future beyond the grave, more glorious than you can imagine. Now, I know this sounds incredible. Even to Christians, this is a test of faith. On one level, it's easier to believe that Jesus really could do miracles, isn't it? He was God walking on the earth. Okay, I can sort of see how he could do miracles. Uh, on another level, we find his, his teaching, his example compelling. Maybe we can believe that he rose from the dead. After all, God can do anything. But a new creation? Does that seem a bit too much of a stretch for you? The idea of billions of people from every ethnic group and people group living in a new universe forever? Isn't that kind of science fiction? It would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? If we didn't already have the prior evidence of the first creation. Cosmologists are only now beginning to discover how vast the cosmos is. We're really in our infancy in understanding this universe. Think about the grandeur of what already exists. Just think about the power that it took to form and sustain this universe, to design this planet with all of its beauty, to steer it through the long ages and make it the perfect place for human life to flourish. If God can do all of that, then he can certainly create or recreate it whenever he wants. And he has promised he will do so. 
Jesus, it says here, is the firstborn from among the dead. The first of many millions, even billions of people in a new humanity who will live in a world of love. The post-death, post-sin future. So when it says in verse 18 that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, we know what kind of beginning we're talking about. The start of the new creation. It has already begun. And all this is possible because of what it says in verse 19. Let me read that to you. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven, on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, Jesus Christ was not just a good man, a great teacher, a prophet. Verse 19 says, all the fullness of God dwelt in him, lived in him. Sometimes we think of the Trinity as a bit like a pie. There's this round pie and it's sort of divided into three parts. God the Father's got a third of the pie stuff. Jesus, he's got a third. The Holy Spirit's got the other third. You know, three slices of a pie. But this text says of Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelled in him. So everything that God is, Jesus is. The fullness of God dwells in each person of the Godhead. All the power of God, yes. All the wisdom of God, yes. All the majesty of God, yes. All the righteousness of God, it all lived in Jesus. Because all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. You see, we thought we knew Jesus, but now, can you see, he's bigger than you ever imagined. He's the image of God. He made it all. He paid it all. He's so big he can't fit in the room. And now we find out what he did with all his amazing power and wisdom and majesty. Verse 20. He, he reconciled to himself all things, things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's right. Follow the chain of ideas. The image of God. The one who made everything that is. The one who died. God's image, God dead. Having come in all his fullness, Jesus Christ submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, the worst way to die in the ancient world. To the Romans, it was the ultimate way to shame someone, to take away their name and their reputation. Only scum of society were crucified. For the Jews, it was seen as the ultimate judgment that the body was hung up and exposed after death, post-mortem judgment. And it says here that God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in Jesus and for him to be killed. Why? Because it was only through this, this death, this blood shed that God was able to reconcile all things to himself and make peace. Now when we hear reconcile, we, think, we should think bringing back together the restoration of broken relationships, the end of hostility, the end of war, and above all, a right relationship with God our maker. 
Now we should ask, what on earth was so bad that Jesus, the great creator and Lord of all things, had to come here to reconcile and die? And verse 21 gives us the answer. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. The Bible says that we were made by God and we were made for him to worship him, to serve him, to love him all our days. And yet the reality is that we made ourselves gods and became his enemies. We did this by living as if God didn't exist and living as we pleased. Some of us did it by being very, very bad. Some of us did it by being very, very good and religious. But either way, we were pleasing ourselves, making ourselves Lord and Saviour. And there's only one word for this according to the Bible, and here it is in verse 21. It is evil behaviour. Normally we reserve the word evil for really bad people, don't we? Rapists, murderers. But we're told here that God's verdict on us is that our behaviour in rejecting him is evil. And as such, outside of Jesus, we are his enemies and his anger rests upon us, which is not a good place to be. To be the enemy of the loving creator, the most powerful being in the universe, to shake your fist at him, the one who created you and gave you everything, to ignore him and reject him and spurn his love. What a place to be. You don't want to stay in that place for long. And so all of this makes verse 20 the more amazing because it's saying that the creator himself, the one that we've ignored and denied and rejected and hated, he came into our world and humbled himself and became one of us in order to die for us. And through that, through his shed blood to make peace, to reconcile us to God and to make an end to hostility and war between us and the Father. Now that is glorious. And it's not even the full story. Because the verse says that God has reconciled all things to himself through the cross. Not just forgiving a vast number of sinners, but also dealing with the whole of creation's ills. Not just forgiving sins and beaming people up out of a broken world and saying, forget about it. No, the cross deals with all the brokenness in the universe. And it says that one day Jesus will bring reconciliation even in the physical world. From the micro level of bacteria genetic disorders and diseases to the macro level of earthquakes and global warming. The cross deals with all the effects of human sin. Jesus' work on the cross is truly cosmic. It could be no less, could it, for the creator to die? So, in conclusion, we want to see the real Jesus this Christmas. And now we've caught a glimpse. The true image. The one who made it all and the one who paid it all, who took all his strength and power and beauty and chose the cross. So the heart of Christianity, the heart of our faith, is not uh, a religion or a set of rituals or a new way to be holy, but it's a relationship with a person. Christianity is Christ. So the only way to grow as a person is to know him. Maturity comes through knowing Jesus more and more. It's absolutely paramount, friends, that we know Jesus, we really know him and see him as he really is. I want to finish with two implications for you and me today. The first is reorder and the second is reconcile. Firstly, reorder, it says in verse 18, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy 
That's what Jesus deserves. He deserves to be absolutely supreme in your life. This is so unlike a, a, a guru or a teacher. Now, with a guru or a wise teacher, you can take some things on board if you want. You can believe some things, reject others. But if Jesus Christ is God, you can't relate to him at all and retain something in your life that's non-negotiable, can you? He's God. Nothing in your life, no views, no ideas, no convictions, no loves, nothing can be a non-negotiable if Jesus is God. Imagine you have a friend who's very ill. They've got cancer and they're going to die. The prognosis is not good. But you come to discover that there is a way out for this friend. And the way they can be cured is that they have to stop eating chocolate. True. So you go to your friend in the hospital and you tell them the good news. Listen, in order for you to be saved and healed, you just have to stop eating chocolate. And your friend looks at you and says, give up chocolate? Are you insane? You would be crazy, wouldn't you, to make chocolate a non-negotiable in the face of cancer. And yet, this is what people do spiritually all the time. They investigate Christianity, they're drawn to some of the teachings, they're drawn to the community. Then they hit a speed bump. Something that challenges something in their lifestyle, like the Bible teaches you should only have sex within marriage. And they say, oh, I couldn't do that. Just think what they've turned into a non-negotiable. A few years of not having sex until they can get married and rejecting eternal life with the Lord of glory. If Jesus is God, then nothing is non-negotiable for us. And secondly, if Jesus is God, as this passage says, we must be reconciled to him. We must be reconciled. Let me read those verses again as we close. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That means whoever you are here today, and I don't know you all, whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus Christ came for you. His blood is enough to cover all your sins to forgive you for everything you've ever done and ever will, and to love and welcome and accept you freely into his family. Be reconciled to God. Some of you are thinking, but there's this thing I can't forgive myself for. He's not saying forgive yourself, come to Jesus for forgiveness. Some of you are thinking, I'm not sure, I'm just not sure about this, I've been sitting on the fence. No, some of you have been sitting on the fence for too long. Be reconciled to him this Christmas and receive the greatest gift you will ever receive. Nothing material, but the, the Lord himself. Let me ask, I'm going to pray, that you seriously consider and look in your heart and wonder and, and ask yourself, where are you today? with Jesus? Where are you in relationship to the living God? And if there's someone here who wants to become a Christian now, to put their trust in him, then pray with me during this prayer, will you? I'd love to talk to you afterward. Let's pray.